The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most popular and well-known stories that Jesus tells. In the version we'll look at, it's uh, in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the first nine chapters. Luke tells us who Jesus is, and in the 10th chapter beginning there, and for the next nine chapters, he tells us what followers of Jesus are to do. And in the first part of the chapter that we won't have looked at, he says that we are to be gospel sharers, messengers carrying it out. And now we're, we take up the story and says that we are to be gospel neighbors one to another. Luke 10, give attention to this, the hearing and the reading of God's Word. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? How does it read to you? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an end and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the straightforward meaning of this parable is pretty clear that our compassion is to be large and range hard, and the disciples and followers of Jesus are to show mercy and compassion to others. We know that. And other religions teach that. But on a little examination, we will see they're also darker and edgier and more demanding and maybe not more interesting, but... Uh, deeper dimensions to the story than that direct, correct reading. First of all, note that the story is a story inside of a story. It's so hard to, to watch a movie any longer that is laid out in a linear fashion. They tell flashbacks and interrupt scenes to tell scenes going along. Well, this is a story set inside of a story, just like a, a jewel and a, a, a wedding ring. 
And the setting is an encounter, a dialogue, an engagement between Jesus and a lawyer, not just any lawyer, but a religious lawyer. He's steeped in the law. And the text, as well as the story itself, says quite clear, he sets out to test Jesus, to trap him. Jesus has spent a lot of time with outcasts and those who are unclean and sinners and tax collectors and even people outside the nation of Israel. And he expects him to say that God doesn't care that much about the law. His standards can be lowered. So he says, Master, what can I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question of the setting that the parable is set in. And uh, the lawyer expects to trap Jesus, but instead, Jesus parries that thrust. He actually traps the lawyer. And one of the lessons we learn here is to be trapped by Jesus is to be trapped by the embrace of love. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. But he does it with, in German, it's a gegenfrage, a counter question. And it's a, a deeply rabbinical style of reasoning and working. You might have seen the movie where the hero goes up to a rabbi and asks him, why, Rabbi, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? And the rabbi thinks about it for a while and ponders it carefully. And then he says, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? So in doing this, Jesus is being deeply rabbinical. And he says, how do you read it? He knows that the lawyer will have no trouble answering this. This Wednesday, some of us, I wish I had been one, it's not our free church tradition, but I sometimes, I regularly like to uh, embrace the richness of other Christian traditions, but Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and some Christian traditions uh, worshipped and put a cross of ashes on their forehead, marking them out, branding them, as it were, for that day and this season by the signature of Christ and the cross of Christ and and a not entirely dissimilar fashion, this lawyer had what was called a phylactery. It was a little neat leather box. It was tightly bound in thongs, right, so that it held that little box right in the center of his forehead. And inside, it had two quotations, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus, and you hear his answer, but it was right there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, soul and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus hears this, and he says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Having failed to trap Jesus in undermining the law, the lawyer tries a second ploy. He knows what Jesus is doing, and so he immediately fires back, well, who is my neighbor? Uh, I had a parishioner in one church I served who went back and finished college midlife, mid-career. She got her uh, undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona at age 50. She said, I'm a grown person. I'm this is my job, I'll be darned if I'm going to do anything but get an A in every single class I take. And indeed, she did. She graduated summa cum laude with highest honors. And she didn't always say this explicitly. She always said it implicitly. And actually, sometimes she even said the words. She said, every class I went to, I said, Professor, what do I have to do to get an A? I don't care what it is. I don't care where the bar is. I'll do it. And she did. So in his own way, the lawyer is kind of doing that. He's whittling down the law to size. 
well, who is my neighbor? What's the standard? What's the lowest common denominator I can reach to achieve the goal you said I must? Um, Jesus' answer is really amazing. He doesn't denigrate the law. He says the law is the way of life, but it's not the way to life. The law is the way you are to live, but it is not the way that will save you. And the lawyer tries to, to wriggle off the horns of that dilemma. Uh, two sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, wrote a book called Soul Searching. I, they did 3,000 interviews, and they published their conclusions and came up with a term that has been rightly popular in the circles I travel in. They say much of American Christianity is moral, therapeutic deism. Here's where they say, a significant part of Christianity in the United States, this is a, a result of their study, is actually only tenuously connected to Christian faith in any sense that is seriously related to the actual historical Christian tradition, but has rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten cousin, and then the phrase they coined that's become coin of the realm in some circles, my circles. Some total of the Christian faith, and it's therapeutic because its goal isn't to confess your sins or to find forgiveness or to give glory to God or, or revel in the salvation of His great grace. It's to feel better. It's to feel good about life. It's to be happy, moralistic, therapeutic deism. We believe there's a God. He's set things in motion. I don't I don't want him to be too terribly involved in my life unless I need him, unless he's relevant, then it's okay. But most of the time, he can be there and I can be there. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Uh, in a book not on that, but Greg Gilbert, it's titled, What is the Gospel? He sort of expounds upon that. It has three pages. I'm not going to read that much to you, but this is a teaser about the doctrine of God that goes with that kind of position. He writes, tongue firmly in cheek, let me introduce you to God. You might want to lower your voice a little before you go in. He might be sleeping now, he's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, <laughs> before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though. God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by, and now he spends most of his time just hanging out in the garden in the back and I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. It continues, but that's enough to get the point. 
If Smith and Denton are right, and they have 3,000 interviews that say they are, that is the God that many of the American churches teach and promote. And the sadness is that not that the American church isn't doing a good job at it, they're doing too good a job. And maybe rather than getting people to come to church, uh, that only is going to compound the problem. What we need is a more robust and authentic Christianity. Well, at first blush, actually, when I started working on this parable, I thought, well, is that, is that going to take me down that road? And happily, because it's the Word of God, of course, it doesn't. It does honor the rule. There are ways our conduct should be conformed. There are things we should do. But this is anything but a tepid little morality tale that we've tried to make it. Jesus is not telling his father, followers what I've already said. It's good to be good. It's nice to be nice. So let's be better and nicer. This is a story full of tough twists and turns. Remember that the setting, the question Jesus is answering is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Fulfill the law and you'll be saved, but of course that's impossible. Jesus, the master teacher, is saying this is the way you ought to live, but of course this is the way you cannot live and you will not live, so if you think this is the way to inherit eternal life, you are sadly mistaken. So the, under, the lawyer understands that, and he gives the second parry. Well, who is my neighbor? As I said before, he's trying to whittle down the law. He's trying to lower the bar, make it a standard that he can meet. He demands again to know what is the absolute minimum standard humanity has to beat in order to satisfy God. So at that point, the setting is complete, and Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And he tells a story that is incredibly rich and complex and is full of breathtaking danger and surprise. Jesus sets the story in a stretch of road everybody in that region would know about. It's full of switchbacks and descents and valleys and hills. We've been reading with horror about the 40-mile caravan of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, that's probably a straight stretch, but it has its own problem. There's mud and road, and it would be uh, succumbed to air power if it was there. They are liable. That's something like the, the road that Jesus is describing. In, uh, there's even one part that's known as the Pass of Blood. I remember my second time to New York City, but my first time as a grown-up without being on a elementary school trip, and I was alone. I was uh, on the subway late at night. I was about, I talked with a, a very handsome, uh, uh, well-spoken uh, man of an ethnicity different from my own, and uh, liked him a great deal, and I got off the I stood up on the subway to get off near Columbia University, about 125th Street, and his voice stopped me. He said, what are you doing? And I said, I told him, and he said, well, where are you going? And I told him, and he said, well, stay on, get off the next stop with me. Won't be much farther from there, and I'll walk you there. So I stayed on the subway, and 
walked with my nighttime uh, good Samaritan to my destination. He walked me all the way, and I was appreciative of that. The helper in the story Jesus tells does not arrive that early on time. Instead, an Israelite is beaten by the side of the road and is left there probably dying. Along comes a priest, a priest, he doesn't stop. Along comes a Levite, he doesn't stop. You know the story. And they know that the Israelite is probably dying and the robbers are probably close by. To stop and help might be fatal. When the Samaritan stops, he is risking everything. And he stops and says, I will pay whatever it takes for this man to get better. The uh, International Mission Board of Southern Baptists have, uh, for several decades, put more of a premium on evangelism, and I applaud that. Uh, the church is the only institution that is charged, it's the first part of chapter 10, with being gospel sharers and gospel bearers and gospel carriers. I applaud that emphasis. But I'm also glad that they've, they've loosened that slide. They haven't dropped it, of course. It's always primary but they have returned to a little more attention to a ministry of healing and of helping, that Jesus is not, not only brings a ministry of salvation, of teaching, but He also brings a ministry of binding up wounds to whoever, believers and unbelievers, people who will be in the kingdom, out of the kingdom. The text here having said the setting and the story, has an amazing scope and reach. The detail of the story that really darkens things and in a couple related but still different ways is that the helper is a Samaritan. He is despised and rejected. He's an outcast. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he is preoccupied almost with going through Samaria. I must needs go through Samaria of teaching and responding to the plea from a centurion and healing his son, a Syrophoenician woman. The compassion and care and concern, even though it starts with the people of Israel, immediately and uh, in a way which gets the consternation of his contemporaries goes to a broad scope to everyone in every place at every time. Nobody is outside the compass of Jesus' care and concern. So to his disciples, he's saying, I want you to look at people who think differently than you, act differently than you, look differently than you, have different tastes than you, who have a different religion from you. Uh, Stephanie and I had the privilege of the whole month of January and into early February hosting a couple uh, young ladies, graduates, uh, a few years ago, and they've been doing other things, but they were coming together, graduates of Cal Baptist University, and uh, waiting around together in this locale until they could get the visa to go to Russia, where they are now, or the last I had heard from early February. They're seeing if they can get any money, and they might have to go uh, outside of the country. But these young ladies are giving their lives uh, not to another outpost of the West or to Europe, but to predominantly, because they are women, to Muslim women. They are giving their lives. 
to people whose culture and interests and tastes are radically different from their own. The detail of the Samaritan takes us to this place. I don't have to tell anyone in this room that we live in a time of tremendous uh, division in this country, particularly located along ethnic and economic lines. Unquestionably, much of it has been manipulated and stirred up for political ends. But it has also focused attention on uncompleted work. I'm a child, many, many of you are probably children of the civil rights movement in America. It was formative of my youth. I remember going and walking in my hometown amidst Martin Luther King Jr.'s Resurrection City, and I was there. One of my regrets, I wasn't there, but I watched it live on the television in my home, his great I Have a Dream speech from the Lincoln Memorial and before them all. And as we've rewritten history over the 50 years and more, uh, I think people have forgotten that although, to be sure, there was a humanitarian movement and there were college student freedom writers primarily and richly, even in the South, not just in the African-American church, but throughout Christendom, this was a movement instilled by and energized by the Christian gospel and the Christian church. It brought us together as a country. We knew what happened had to happen, and we saw a great change. I have been listening a lot, though in the last year and a year plus, and I think it would be fair to say that not all has been accomplished that we hoped and envisaged. Much has been accomplished, but not as much has been accomplished as we hoped in that era and that time. I've been saddened by statistics that I've read in 1950. Five out of six, five out of six minority children in the United States were born in a two-parent home. Today, fewer than one out of six are born in a home like that. In the 1960s, the majority, almost by two to one, of uh, people in prison were of the majority culture in this country, and today that's almost reversed. One writer put it this way, Majority people don't think of themselves in terms of race. When you are the majority, nothing you do is ethnic. It's just the way things are. When you are a minority, everything you do has color. So these two years have caused me to reflect on where we are and what we need to do. And God, of course, has created the world with enormous and rich diversity. He has young and old Romans and Greeks and Jews and Democrats and Republicans and Baptists and Episcopalians. The world is a riot of color and distinctiveness. This is pleasing to him. It is within his sight, but it's a wonderful time to be the church. God has created and delights in diversity, but calls us together without diminishing that distinctiveness. We aren't to blend out. We are to see our distinctiveness and revel in that, and yet we are to be one. Uh, the, the culture doesn't have, it, it has tepid resources for that, and it's failing them. 
Well, we share the American dream. In my boyhood, we probably did. I think that's weakening. So I don't want to say there aren't secular resources in which we can come together as a nation. We must, and we must find ways to do that. But the great resources, the great resources of how out of diversity comes unity is the Christian gospel. With all our differences and distinctiveness, we are like a symphony orchestra gathered around that one instrument that tunes it, the tuning fork of Christ, and we are called together. Our identity is not primarily in our differences, though we can appreciate them. It is in our common adoption into the life of Christ. Jesus is saying, I am providing a new way. I am the end of ethnocentrism with my coming. A radically new way of defining the people of God has been made. It is faith in me. Faith in Jesus Christ trumps ethnicity. Over and over again in the Gospels this happens. We've already sent them this centurion son, the Syrophoenician woman. The, uh, the climax of Matthew's gospel, go out and make disciples and baptize all nations. Um, Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12 say, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship and promise, and strangers to the covenant of promise. The first part of Luke 10 is where to be message sharers, and in message sharers, we are making out of diversity this one great church. Jesus says, I want you, pathway. I want you, the American church, the worldwide church, to be a display case. I want people to look at the way you live and the diversity you are and what calls you together and say there is no other way to understand who you are. There is no way to make sense of this other than a supernatural act of the Spirit of God. I believe in evangelism. I think there's no other way but Jesus Christ, but I wouldn't have the faintest idea how to do evangelism if I couldn't at the end of the day say, hey, come with me. Come with me to this church. It's a bunch of broken people, too. They're not perfect. But I'll say this. They are living differently. Not perfectly, but differently because they believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Come and see, come and look, come and taste. One of the first things that was said about this church to me when uh, I was asked to consider serving you, and I'm so glad I was asked and I'm so glad I have, is that, hey, we're diverse. We're kind of in downtown Redlands and we have a lot of uh, economic diversity and a lot of cultural diversity and a lot of ethnic diversity, and we do, and we, I don't think there's any way or should be any other way in the future than we will be even more. And that will be a display case for the gospel and its power. Of course, there is the straightforward meaning, too. We are to be compassionate. We are to care. Uh, Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on the responsibilities, the obligations of Christians to the poor. He writes, Christ loved and pitied us when we were poor, and he laid out himself to help and even shed his own blood for us without grudging. He did not think much to deny himself and to be at great cost for us, 
vile wretches in order to make us rich and to clothe us with kingly robes when we were naked, to feast us at his own table with dainties infinitely costly when we were starving, to advance us from the dunghill and set us among princes and make us to inherit the throne of his glory and to give us the enjoyment of the greatest wealth and plenty to all eternity. He answers some objections to uh, giving to charity. He says, well, you know, you say, well, I, I, I don't have enough to give. And he gives an answer. I'd seen it before from C.S. Lewis. Maybe C.S. Lewis got it from Edwards or just great minds thinks alone. And he said, you know, we are called to bear one another's burdens. And the only giving that really counts is something that costs you something. Lewis puts it this way, that uh, if there aren't some things you aren't doing because you are giving to others, you aren't giving. He doesn't give an amount, but that's a standard that we should give to a degree that costs us. If we are to bear one another's burdens, we are to be burden-bearing. Now, we have to be wise. There's another sermon for another time. I, I believe all of this, that we do it case by case. There's some kind of support and some kind of helping that is counterproductive and is harmful, and we need to look at each case and and give and help and assist the way that will be productive and helpful. I believe that. I've acted out on that. and uh, We all should act out on that. We should be wise in our giving. But we also are doing something wrong, and the church is doing something wrong, if we don't err. And we will err. Mistakes will be, be made, but more mistakes should be made on the side of generosity and grace and giving. Even if it's wasted, it shouldn't be wasted. It should be targeted and well. But that's the straightforward meaning of the text, and we hear that and we affirm it. But there's another overlooked aspect of the story. I said there were two ways in which the, uh, the helper being a Samaritan was important, and this one I'd never seen before in the text. But looking at the uh, nature of the helper of Samaritan unlocks the real radical nature of the parable. This isn't just another maxim like all the other world religions. Be compassionate, give alms, help others. We should. And I don't denigrate that. The, the, the text does teach that. But it also teaches something else more rugged and stunning. It's the way Jesus tells the story. It's who he puts in the saddle and who he puts in the ditch. I would have told the story that the Samaritan, that oppressed figure that I ought to reach out to, that is difficult to reach out, I would have put him in the ditch and me, the Israelite, in the saddle. But he reverses that. It is the lawyer, it's the Israelite, it's the Christian, it's the church member who's in the ditch. And the Samaritan comes along the enemy, the one we have no right to expect anything from. Here's another parable of the grace of God. You see, Jesus really never answers the question, who is my neighbor? The question he answers is, who has neighbored you? And when we have law, when we have responsibility, and we have obligations, it crushes us unless we have energy to do it. And so he says, 
You cannot love your neighbor unless you have been neighbored. Unless one that you have no right to expect, that you have no claim on, has come and lifted you, loved you and lifted you and changed everything about you. So Jesus tells the story placing us on the road and says you will never be a neighbor until you have been neighbored. You will never be a neighbor until you realize you have been neighbored by the one who by every right was your enemy. You will never be able to have the kind of ministry to your neighbors around you until you have received that kind of neighborless yourself. Who was neighbor to you? And every person who has confessed Christian, Jesus Christ as Lord knows the answer to the question, that question. The gospel says that Jesus came into the world. He came onto the road, and he didn't risk his life. He gave his life. He expended everything. The most powerful way to overcome social and race divisions is to live together and create a kind of community that is unique and inexplicable and unavailable everywhere else. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.13, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. To be a Christian doesn't just mean getting your life together therapeutically. It means to be brought near. Paul prays to his favorite church, if he, ha if he does have one, it's Philippi, uh, Philippi. And when he prays for them, he says, I pray that your love may abound all the more. The word abound means to overflow. Christ's love, his blood brings us near. So Jesus summarized the law or affirms the, summarize, the summation of the law in these two great ways, love God, love your neighbor, heart and soul and strengthen your neighbor as, that powerful word as. We know what it is. I've already eaten this morning. I know what it is to wake up and take care of myself and eat, and I'm going to take care of myself later. And the standard is impossible, but we should, we should, and we are called to rejoice and care about and think about the well-being of others in the same way, not, not to care about myself, but to care about others the same way. I, I am stunned that Jesus takes all the tradition, all the laws, all of the prophets, all of the words of the Old Testament, and sums them up with that one word, love. To the charge that he was an extremist, Martin Luther King Jr. from a Birmingham jail cell wrote, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? Was Martin, not Martin Luther an extremist for grace? So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremist for love or for hate. When I was in graduate school, so that means the 1970s, I had an experience I will uh, never forget what a privilege Martin Luther King Sr. Uh, spoke to a small group of us and I have that hour burned into my memory. There were just five or six of us, Martin Luther King Sr. His son had already been murdered. Some of you might not remember, but his wife was gunned down in church after he lost his son playing the organ. 
in his church. And he said, you know, the world has taken everything from me it can take. It has taken my son. It has taken my wife. But the one thing the world cannot take from me and it will not take from me is my capacity to love. Uh, that's my most dramatic memory, but it, it filled out something else he'd said earlier. He said, you know, as we struggle for uh, race relations, that struggle is out of love, but not only for my ethnic brothers and sisters, but also for our oppressors. When we say no, when we draw a line, when we say no further, we are speaking it out of love. Because to oppress is to dehumanize yourselves, that is to make you less than you should be. It's a, the world has taken everything from me it can, but it will not take from me my capacity for love. He was by love compelled. That's what this story is about and the way that Jesus tells us. God has made us, and all who call upon his name will be saved. And maybe we, with all our diversity and color and joy and distinctiveness by our lives and by our life together, bring God honor and God glory. Love is the surpassing reality of the Christian experience. And some of us, I have done this, I have I've tried to draw the love of God as a smile inside of a circle, but brothers and sisters, the love of God is so awesome that there is not one of us in this room that could stand it if it really hit us. Because to be loved by the eternal God is to have a claim placed on you which reaches from the heights to the depths and beyond and will change you. The parable of the Good Samaritan summarizes in this story told again and again that we can love God and love one another because while we were enemies, he has first loved us. Living in holy God, by the blood of Christ, you have torn down the wall of hostility and made us one. We pray for your wounded world. We pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray for the people of Russia. We pray for the people of the world. We pray for our leaders and for our citizens. We pray for those who are crying out for justice and crying out for peace. We pray that your church might be the church you have called her to be. I pray for Pathway Church and for her next pastor. I pray that she might continue to be a mighty display case for the gospel of love and the unity that you bring out of the fellowship of diverse tongues and nations and tribes and people. Make Pathway nothing less and nothing other than a display case for your love. We thank you that you have given us such a wonderful definition of being a Christian. You made Jesus our sin on the cross, and you slew him, and you did that so that you could be with us and we could be with you. Only your Spirit can show us and enable us how best to respond. Father, we ask that as we come nearer to you, we might 
do so by the blood of Jesus and only by renewing our covenant with you can we be people, as Paul says in Ephesians, that participate in the covenant of hope. For it is in Jesus' name we pray.